This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. It's Food Friday. Say you're in the mood for some hearty soup for dinner tonight. You hop onto uh, Google or whatever search engine and type in potato soup recipe. Next, you're faced with a whopping 350 plus million search results. Now, of course, not all of those are actual recipes, but even if a million of them are or 100,000 or just 1,000, that's too many for you to wade through. Chances are you look at the first page of results. Google usually highlights about 15. Pick something based on a high user rating or if there's bacon in the picture. The soup could turn out pretty good or it could end up being kind of meh. And you'll wonder why didn't pick one of those other millions of results. Today on Food Friday, a food writer and recipe tester is letting us in on her secrets to finding the best recipes online and why it's so hard to do that sometimes. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What are your tricks for finding great recipes online? Do you have a go-to food website or blog that you start with to look for recipes? What is the best? What's the worst recipe you've ever found online? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Peggy Paul Casella is a professional recipe tester and cookbook author and editor based in Philadelphia. She's the creator of the recipe website, ThursdayNightPizza.com. Peggy, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, sometimes we assume when that uh, search engine puts some results on the top, well, they're going to be the best results, right? But uh, you know, and, and I think we all know that isn't always the case with recipes. Why does that happen? Mostly because of SEO and because of the way bloggers like me have to make a living. <laughs> so we kind of all have to go by this very specific rubric that is dictated mostly by Google. Um, and Google means well. The whole point is for Google to sort out which recipes are the best and which blog posts create content that actually will help the person who's looking for that content. But the problem is that within that SEO world, it becomes very formulaic and bloggers end up playing this endless game of like, you know, who can take the most beautiful photo. <laughs> now they can take a great photo, but can they really cook? Is that recipe really going to work? Um, so you'll find in the top five to 10 search results, a lot of times the photos look the same. <laughs> Sometimes the people look the same. The format of the blog posts are exactly the same a lot of the time. Uh, and that's why. The SEO search engine optimization. So and you wrote about this in Wired. Sometimes it's a, a mm -hmm. game of chase where Google wants it to look this way. Okay, so if I want to do a blog, I better make it look this way. And there's just this convergence that it all ends up looking kind of the same. Yeah, yeah. And so on the one hand, Google's done a great service by incentivizing bloggers and food content people to think a lot about the type of content they're putting out there and to, you know, work around this algorithm that we all depend on to get the ad revenue that we're all hoping for every month. Um, so on the one hand, I'm not totally anti Google here. I think uh, it does challenge people to create that content to, to take those process photos for a new recipe they're making and really uh, take a shot of the, of the food that really shows the food, you know, and be mindful about the tips and tricks you're putting in your post. 
but I do think a lot of uh, content creators take all the shortcuts they can take just to pad those posts with keywords and things that they know Google wants without actually making the recipe, without actually testing the recipe. Okay, so we have found uh, that recipe online, or we're looking for a recipe for a particular dish. What do we do to glance at that recipe and say, okay, this looks like the real deal. This looks like kind of a half-baked uh, attempt to get that search engine optimization. How do, we, how do we evaluate a recipe to see, yeah, this one's the real deal? Okay, so I would say usually when I'm looking for a recipe, one of the first things I do is I hit that little button at the top of the recipe or atop of the blog post that says skip to recipe. I skip to the recipe and then I look at it. Does it have ratings? If so, I skim the comments a bit to see, okay, how mindful are these comments? Are these all people the person knows that have been like, you know, mindlessly <laughs> just giving them a five-star rating? Or are there comments from loyal cooks who come back to that recipe and take the time to write a paragraph about how it worked? And if that's the case, then you know it works. Um, so that's one way that you can absolutely tell. Another way is if you look at the photographs that the blogger or food content creator has put up, are there process shots? Because if there's process shots, at least you have a better chance of believing that that person actually made the recipe. Um, another way is in the recipe itself, are the steps specific? You know, one example I always bring up when I'm talking to other people in this world are, you know, onions drive me crazy. So if you're reading an article or I'm sorry, if you're reading a recipe mm -hmm. and you see someone has said one cup of onions, <laughs> you're like, wait a minute. That's one whole on. onion. Sure. <laughs> right. Right. Do you cram a whole onion in a cup <laughs> measure? No, no one's ever going to know. No one's ever going to think that I know. But on the other hand, it just shows that the cook, the content creator, was not very mindful to give the reader, all right, well, okay, it's just chopped. Is it minced? Mm -hmm. Is it shredded? Is it sliced? You know, those are very different measurements. So that's the kind of thing I look for. Like, how mindful is the recipe? And also, do they have loyal test cooks who are writing comments about how it turned out or maybe how they tweaked it a little bit. Um, yeah, I think those are my main tips, at least. Talking to Peggy Paul Casella, professional recipe tester, cookbook author. She's the creator of the recipe website, ThursdayNightPizza.com. On this edition of Food Friday, she is helping us find good recipes on the internet and figure out how to know what could be a good recipe. Want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Have you found uh, recipe websites that you go back to again and again because they work, they're reliable? Have you had food disasters based on cooking something off the Internet? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. So, Peggy, the recipe I've used the most that I found online is a, uh, a zucchini relish recipe. Zucchini uh, disposal is a big issue here. Uh, it <laughs> the re it's from, like, 2011. The website looks like it could have been made in the 1990s. 
I try to search for that recipe by name. It does not come up on search engines. I have to keep the link so I can keep finding the recipe if I want to share it with other people. Like, I don't know, sometimes those older ones were a labor of love. They weren't worried about bringing in the audience. Do you do you have thoughts on finding those out-of-the-way, off-the-beaten-path recipes? I sure do. I sure do. I um, One of the things... There are a few recipes, right? When you're looking for a zucchini bread recipe, for instance, if you're me, right? And you grew up eating mom's zucchini bread and you don't want a newfangled version. You want the kind that you had when you were 12. Um, for those types of recipes, I actually do. I try not to go with one of the latest blogs or recipe websites out there. I go searching. I, I call it spelunking through the internet. I will search it three different ways. I'll try and remember like what was one ingredient that was in there that might not be in these newer versions. Like, you know, I want a zucchini bread that uses vegetable oil, you know, mm -hmm. clutch your pearls, right? <laughs> um, I want, I want a zucchini recipe that uses cinnamon and vegetable oil. Now that search result will come up with yes, the typical results at the top. And some of those may be awesome. But if you're looking for more, an, you know, an older school, less frills, go like five pages into the search results and then look there and then keep looking or maybe even search something crazy like zucchini bread recipe like the Fanny Farmer cookbook. You know, something like that might draw up a more interesting result. We're going to get a link, by the way, to that very specific zucchini relish recipe at WPR.org slash Central Time if people want to make it at home if you've got those uh, big zucchini left over. Uh, let's bring in a caller now at 800-642-1234. Carolyn is with us in Oconomowoc. Carolyn, hi. Hi. Uh, so my experience, I think I was following a recipe for maybe BuzzFeed. It was for... I want to say like ultimate chocolate chip cookies and they recommended using browned butter instead of regular butter. And in the recipe, it said, Oh, as you brown your butter, it's going to reduce in volume. So if you're not at quite two cups or whatever, once you brown the butter, just add a little bit of extra water into the measuring cup. And if you add cold water mm -hmm. to hot brown butter, yep. it will explode. <laughs> and oh, it no. is real hard to real hard to clean up all that butter. <laughs> Uh, you, you're you're okay, recipe. I hope, Carolyn, right? You're fine? I'm okay. I'm fine, but that measuring cup has never looked the same. Wow. <sighs> Carolyn, thanks for that call. Yeah, that. Uh, are there red flags for you, Peggy, where this is clearly something untested because it just <laughs> defies the laws of physics? Totally. All the time. There are things, I can't think of an example right now, of course. I can't think of a good one, but... Mostly, I find it a lot in measurements, like I said, with the onions. I also find it a lot with times. Like, there have been a few times that I've had to laugh out loud where mm -hmm. I've seen, you know, someone writing a recipe for caramelizing onions, but they only are using half an onion, and they're using a giant Dutch oven. And if you just do some simple critical thinking, you think, all right, well, if that surface area is only for this little bit of onion and you're saying to cook it for an hour. Well, those onions are not going to be good, honey. Carbonized, not caramelized, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, and that's just one example um, that I think I'm mushing together a few different things I've seen, but yeah, it's just that kind of thing. And then a lot of times you'll find a recipe that clearly is not using enough liquid or sometimes too much liquid based on the type of pan they're asking for. I've had, I've seen a recipe for a gravy that was making enough gravy for like a Thanksgiving turkey for, you know, 20 people. And it said, make the gravy, take out your smallest saucepan. And I'm like, uh, I mean, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> a dot of gravy on each serving. We're talking to Peggy Paul Casella, professional recipe tester, cookbook author and editor, creator of the recipe website, thursdaynightpizza.com. She's with us on Food Friday to let us in on the secrets of how to sift through thousands, millions of search results and find good, usable recipes online. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have a go-to fantastic recipe that you found online? You can tell us about it. Maybe it was in an unexpected place on the Internet. How about a recipe that looked great in the photos but turned out to be a dud? Or, or exploded, even. Tell us about it. Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or you can post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. It's Food Friday. We're picking up our talk with food writer and recipe tester Peggy Paul Casella about how to find good recipes on the Internet and how to figure out which ones are good and which ones are eh. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Is there a go-to recipe source online for you? What do you do when you're searching for, you know, I want to make blank or I have this ingredient. Do you have a method that gives you pretty good results? Do you have questions for our guest? Call 800-642-1234 with your questions or stories. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. James on Facebook says uh, Chef John's Food Wishes channel on YouTube is a great source for new recipes to try. I love his plussed up take. On Franken beans, okay. Uh, YouTube videos, uh, Peggy. How useful do you find those uh, when it comes to recipes? I I tend not to like them unless it's a very specific technique. I just want to read the thing. Do you see a role for videos? I sure do. I think um, one as a content creator myself, who is chained to the Google algorithm. Um, I got into doing video because that was what was preferred. Um, and it was a recommendation brought to me a million times by a million different sources for growth. So I started doing video and I found at first I was hesitant. Then as I did it myself, I started looking on YouTube at what is out there more. And I gotta say, I mean, there are some videos where I think, man, you know, that didn't have to be a video. You could have just <laughs> written that down. Um, because I think, you know, I'm not one that just likes to put my face on a screen just to put my face on a screen, but other videos, I, as a recipe tester, there are a lot of times where I will be working. This just happened. I was editing, uh, an Italian cookbook and the author was trying to explain how to fillet anchovies, fresh anchovies. And I have never filleted a fresh anchovy myself. And so I was reading the description. I was confused by it in the book. And I thought, 
all right, I know what to do. I'm going to go to YouTube. I'm going to find someone who's filleting an anchovy, and then I'm going to help this author rewrite the description in a way that's more visual. Um, and it like those things I go to a lot. I found this adorable old, like, you know, she was probably like an 80 year old Italian grandmother filleting an anchovy. And it just, she did it so well on this video. And I just thought, yeah, I mean, that's, that's why YouTube is there for cooking. Um, yeah, I think, I think I'm the same. I love a written recipe, but I've really come around to the video recipe. I, you know, it, you mentioned cutting up an anchovy. I've used uh, YouTube for, you know, cutting up the best way to cut up a pineapple or whatever. That specific kind of mm-hmm. technique thing, I totally get that. Now, I'm thinking uh, with your pizza website, an example comes to mind here. Uh, just the challenge of, okay, I know how to do this. How do I convey it to others? Uh, years ago, a friend of mine, an amazing cook, was talking me through making my own pizza dough. And, he, you know, it was like, knead it until it feels right was his instruction to me. Uh, it did not come out well. How do you take that sort of like thing that you just know, right, and then figure out a way to tell me, Rob, uh, how to do it so I know what feels right means? You know, I just try and be as honest as possible. Um, I used to, t- to teach more pizza classes here in Philadelphia, and when I did that, I would get the best questions as I'm making the dough, and that really helped me understand what – I understand may not be what someone else understands. So now when I'm doing a video, I try and do, you know, I try and make it really clear what step is what, and I try and like kind of slow down and show each thing at the different steps because, you know, I've made mistakes in the past where I've put up a recipe and not described it as well. And then I get a flourish of comments saying, this recipe doesn't work. It's, (laughs) you know, it's, it's to this or it's to that. And then I go back and read those comments. And at first, you know, I'm a little salty about it, but then I read them again. And then I realize, oh, shoot, I should have explained that you need it until you press on it and it comes back a little bit or until or you knead it with your hands like a cat kneading a sweater, you know? Um, So yeah, it's tough. It is tough, but I try and listen to the comments when they come in and I try and workshop it and I'll sometimes run a description by my sister or my husband or even my six-year-old son, you know? Like, would you understand this? Let's go back to our callers at 800-642-1234. Gary is with us in Brookfield. Gary, hi. Hi, Rob. Thanks for taking my call. The one thought I had is you keep talking about using Google as a search engine. And 1A had a really good program on that a couple of weeks ago where they talked about how Google has changed over the last 15, 20 years. And, you know, perhaps using a different search engine such as DuckDuckGo would be beneficial. Oh, Gary, interesting point. Peggy, have you tried uh, comparing and contrasting uh, different search engines when searching for recipes online? That is a great point. Um, you know, Google is usually my standard go-to um, because they're the gold standard of how I make my living. You know, like I get ad revenue and a lot of that is based on the Google algorithm and, you know, how many people are clicking on ads through Google on my site. So that's why I favor that. But Yes, I have looked on Bing before to compare, especially when I was writing this article for Wired. Um, The search results are different. 
it's in my experience, it wasn't as different as I expected it to be, but it is different. And that is another way to kind of expose other recipe websites that maybe you wouldn't find otherwise. All right. Thanks for that call, Gary. I just tried on DuckDuckGo looking for that zucchini relish. Again, not seeing the result, except <laughs> I'm seeing WPR.org from the last time we linked it, actually. Okay. <laughs> um, Peggy, uh, you were starting to touch on this earlier. Uh, for that focused search, uh, you gave an example in the Wired article about, uh, I think it was Spanakopita, like trying to find the recipe that's going to meet your needs best. Yeah, it's it's kind of how we have to do anything now, right? I mean, this, the world we're in, information is out there and that's great, but there's so much information that you really have to learn how to sort for it. I mean, I kind of, I draw a parallel between sitting down on a Friday night, trying to watch something on TV through the many different streaming services we have now. How do you pick a show to watch? It's kind of similar, you know? <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're looking for a mac and cheese recipe, this is a great example, actually. Mac and cheese is a fantastic idea. So if you, if you are looking for mac and cheese, right, we all know it's not that simple. Do you want a creamy stovetop mac and cheese, or are you more of a baked mac and cheese person that likes it a little more dry? I think if you can describe what you want from the result in your search mm engine, then you're way more likely to end up with something that you're really looking for. We'll leave it there. Peggy, thanks again for joining us today. Been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. That's Peggy Paul Casella, professional recipe tester, cookbook author and editor, creator of the recipe website, thursdaynightpizza.com. She joined us on Food Friday for a look at finding good recipes online. You could keep sharing your favorite sources for great online recipes or successes or failures, explosive or otherwise, over on the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org. Coming up Monday on The Morning Show with Kate Archer Kent, get your finances in order as we head into the holiday season and a new year. A Wisconsin finance writer joins the show with some advice and some inspiration. That's Monday morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. Speaking of recipes, if you look for a grilled cheese sandwich recipe online, you'll find lots of options, but you might just wing it. But hold on. How about a grilled cheese sandwich that serves 750 people? As reported in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, a pair of young YouTube users in Delavan are leading a community effort to set the Guinness record for the largest ever grilled cheese sandwich. The current record is held by somebody from Vermont. So that does need to be fixed. Yeah, they're aiming for 50 square feet of sandwich using 60 pounds of cheese. They're doing the cooking in Milwaukee tomorrow. You can watch history being made and grilled cheese being made starting at 11 a.m. at the Tripoli Shrine Center. Judging scheduled for noon. Then you can line up for a snack. You're never going to guess what that snack is. This is Central Time. Listening to Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. 
Now, as the Israel-Hamas war devastates Gaza, it can be tough for us on the other side of the world to keep up with what's happening from day to day. When there's an explosion or other event, we'll sometimes hear conflicting reports about what caused it, where it came from, who was responsible. When videos circulate on social media, it can be hard to tell what's legitimate, what's been edited or misrepresented. Our next guests are here to help us avoid misinformation coming out of a conflict like this and to better understand how reporters and news organizations handle coverage in a war zone. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Have you encountered questionable material on social media about what's happening in the Middle East right now? Do you have people in your circle on social media who share things that you think are suspect? Where do you go to double-check information? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Emily Vraga is an associate professor at the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota, where she holds the Don R. and Carol J. Larson professorship. She studies misinformation and how people respond to news on contentious issues. She's a graduate of UW-Madison. Emily, thanks for joining us in the studio. It's great to be here. And Lindsay Palmer is an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at UW-Madison. She researches international news and war reporting. Lindsay, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you. It's great to be here. Lindsay, let's start with you and and how news organizations try to gather reliable information in a, a dangerous zone where there are often interested parties who may not want them to have that information. What are some of the main challenges? Well, I think the challenges really depend on exactly where the, the journalists are able to go in the first place. Um, so if we're thinking about news gathering um, in person, right, in the middle of a conflict zone, you know, foreign correspondents are not the people who are, are sitting back at headquarters, right? Um, then the very first challenge is where am I allowed to go? Where can I actually physically be? And when, um, you know, particular governments and, and militaries and militant groups are restricting uh, movement across borders um, or within, you know, particular locations, that's the first challenge. You know, foreign correspondents can't cover news when they've been barred from from going in and telling the story. Emily, uh, that's the challenge at the information gathering uh, end. On the other side of things, it's very easy to uh, promote misinformation. You don't need those permissions. You can do it quickly. How big a challenge is that uh, arms race, in a sense, between the forces of misinformation and the people trying to gather real news? I think you hit exactly on it. It happens so very quickly that people are not necessarily stopping and thinking through, do I know this to be true? What work have I done to make sure that this is something that I want to be sharing, that I want to be associating with, and instead just sharing out of identity, out of horror, out of wanting to do something, even if it's something as simple as, as sharing and saying, look how awful this is. Lindsay, uh, how important is it for news outlets to have these actual reporters on the ground in these areas uh, to get this legitimate information out to the rest of the world? It remains so incredibly important. I think in in an era where, you know, we've been in this era for a while now, right, where we can just circulate information, we can, unfortunately, you know, people can create very convincing, entirely fake videos, and they can also share half-truths, right, and, and, you know, information that hasn't been properly investigated and verified yet. In this environment, we need the people who've been trained 
um, to, to gather information, to present it as fairly as possible, um, you know, from their perspective on the ground, we need these people, I think, now more than ever. Emily, when we are on whatever social media platform we might uh, prefer to use, how do you recommend we take a moment, look at a story and say before, especially before I share this, uh, what do I do to make sure that this is legit? The most important thing you can do is taking that moment. And so before you even get on the social media site, when you know there's going to be a lot of misinformation circulating, reminding yourself that I deeply care about accuracy, that I see my role as promoting high quality information can help you when you get there and you see all this emotional content coming at you and it, you really just want to get engaged with it. And then the second thing is to, to go someplace else and, and verify. Do a little bit of almost news reporting of your own. Look at a bunch of different news sites. Look at uh, intergovernmental agencies who are committed to getting the best information out there. And if they're all reporting the same thing, you can have a lot more faith that that is what we know to be true. We're talking about misinformation and how we gather legitimate information in a war zone. Emily Braga is with us from the University of Minnesota. Lindsay Palmer with UW-Madison. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts or questions. That's 800-642-1234. Let's look a little more specifically now at the, the conflict that, uh, that brought this discussion to the fore uh, in Gaza between uh, Israel and Hamas. Lindsay, does anything stand out to you as uh, unique or particularly challenging for that foreign correspondent working uh, in uh, in Gaza and nearby? Well, unfortunately, um, you know, there, there's not a whole lot about this that does stand out. It's been challenging for foreign correspondents to cover um, what happens in Gaza, you know, for many, many years in 2008 when there were, you know, rockets and, and missiles being um, launched in that area. There were very few foreign correspondents who were able to gain access to cover uh, the conflict. It's it's kind of, um, in many ways, um, just the the kind of latest articulation. I think of a, a very long history. Emily, as you watch uh, stories, uh, videos, often fake videos or very old videos repackaged as breaking news, what kind of what kind of things are you seeing specific to Gaza right now when it comes to uh, misinformation? So I think uh, two things that I see a lot of is, one, a lot of things taken out of context. So taking a video of a movie and saying, look, this is people faking deaths in, um, in the conflict. So making sure that we recognize where that content's coming from, and that's where a, a reverse image search would help you really find that quite easily. And then second, because it there's often a language barrier for us in the United States, people saying this is translated into something that it is totally not. And so uh, playing up this idea that we don't know what they're saying and using that to misrepresent what people are actually saying. Lindsay, has that uh, the social media misinformation and disinformation element changed things for foreign co correspondents? Are they looking over their shoulder in some ways at what stories are being told about the stories they're trying to cover? I think absolutely so. I think that that you know, for a while now, in in war correspondence, um, you know, the different journalists who go and, and cover these conflicts are not only sort of battling with battling in a in a metaphorical sense, mm -hmm. of course, with with the challenges um, that they face on the ground. You know, trying to kind of dodge bullets um, and and sort of get the the story out there while staying alive. They're also constantly having to sort of check social media for this misinformation 
um, trying to sort of anticipate it. They can also be targeted because of misinformation that circulates about them and their networks. Um, they, they are expected to also, you know, tweet um, and, and sort of put information out there and maintain a presence on social media. So I think it just kind of adds several layers of, of stress and danger to their jobs. Lindsay, you mentioned Emily uh, uh, tweeting, uh, now X, of course, Twitter. As you watch platforms and how they handle uh, how information spreads, uh, social media is not uh, well known for uh, keeping false information from flowing. What are you watching uh, on X and other platforms when it comes to how they deal with these issues? So I think it's it's a real challenge. X has gotten a lot of good criticism for some of the steps they have taken, um, especially getting rid of some of the teams that are dedicated to trust and safety. I think that that's a real problem and we need to see a lot more investment in content moderation across platforms. Uh, platforms need to be taking some of the resources they have and dedicating it to making sure that the people on their platform are safe and the information flowing through those spaces is as accurate as possible. We're talking to journalism professors Lindsay Palmer from UW-Madison and Emily Vraga from the University of Minnesota about how we as news consumers can evaluate news coverage of the Israel-Hamas war, avoid misinformation, and understand how actual reporting is happening in a conflict zone like that. You could join in at 800-642-1234. How do you follow news about what's going on in Gaza? Where do you go where you think you're finding reliable information? Do you see a lot of suspicious things coming across your social media feeds? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We continue our conversation about misinformation, disinformation, and media coverage of the Israel-Hamas war and what's going on in Gaza now. Our guests today are Emily Vraga, journalism professor from the University of Minnesota, and Lindsay Palmer, journalism professor at UW-Madison. You can join in at 800-642-1234. How do you evaluate what you see on social media when it comes to uh, breaking news like this? Uh, with controversial arguments surrounding it at the time. What questions do you have for our guest experts? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Want to give a listen to uh, one news outlet uh, issuing a correction uh, related to Gaza. Here's uh, BBC anchor Mariam Mashiri apologizing for an error in their coverage. Now, before we go, earlier on BBC News, we reported on some of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations at the weekend. We spoke about several demonstrations across Britain during which people voiced their backing for Hamas. We accept that this was poorly phrased and was a misleading description of the pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Now, here's the weather. Lindsay, how important is it uh, for news organizations uh, who want to be viewed as legitimate news organizations to offer corrections, whether of fact or interpretation like that one? I think it's so important. And I, I think that it's it's actually um, admirable when news organizations just, you know, hold accountability, right? They, they take responsibility for themselves and say, we messed up there. I think that in such an incredibly um vexed you know conflict like this one with reverberations throughout the world um you know right here in in madison wisconsin right we're seeing people deeply affected by this on all sides um the the precision of terms and the the preciseness with which we talk about the things that are happening 
is the difference um, you know, between really causing harm and just telling, telling the, the story, right? So I think it's, it's vital. And Emily, how about uh, organizations, whether attached to media outlets or independent, devoted to fact-checking? We had this big rise of fact-checking groups, uh, and then they were flooded because then social media came along. Are there, are there efforts to do these things that you think are, are paying off? Yes, I think fact-checking from uh, professional fact-checking organizations, from news organizations, is absolutely essential. When I tell people you should be trying to to verify whether something's true or not, that's the first place a lot of people are going. That's the first thing that's coming up in Google search or whatever other search engine you use. And so if that weren't the case, telling people to, to search wouldn't be all that useful a strategy. We need them there uh, to make sure that we have the, the information we need to know what's true and false. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Leticia is with us in Racine. Leticia, hi. Hi. What did you want to bring up? Yeah, I just want to let you know that I watch Al Jazeera News because the Western media has done a poor job of uh, giving us Palestinians' side of what's going on. Leticia, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Lindsay, can you talk about at least the the perception uh, often often voiced about uh, bias from Western media outlets when they cover issues uh, in the Middle East? Yeah, I'm I'm happy to talk about that. And you know, I think that it's it's an astute observation um, from our caller that there is a tendency, I think, probably in most um, media, right? Most even news media trained and and sort of originating here in the West to have some kind of a perspective, whether or not it's, it's something that we like to talk about um, or think about ourselves as, as journalists, it is common, I think, to sort of have a history of presenting a story in such a way, right, that, that maybe one doesn't even notice that's happening anymore. And so I think one way around that is to actually try to diversify your news diet and, and sort of look for, you know, is the story being told differently in different news outlets and can you sort of put all of those together to to get the whole picture leticia thanks for that call at 800-642-1234 emily do you have thoughts on how we can diversify our media diet as Lindsay was just suggesting there uh, but make sure that we're not stumbling into uh, less legitimate less worthwhile sources that is a tough question, and that is one of the things social media is supposed to be good for, is giving us a diversity of perspectives. So I think even as much as we're talking about the need to be really careful about our, what we're getting on social media, recognizing there's a lot of misinformation, there is also a lot of value to having a lot of different voices offering their perspective in one place for us. We are talking about uh, covering conflict, uh, including the current conflict in Gaza, and how misinformation and disinformation can spread on social media. Lindsay Palmer and Emily Vraga, both uh, journalism professors with us. Lindsay, I want to talk a little bit about uh, often unsung heroes that you have focused on a lot in your work. We might see the name of the BBC correspondent, a New York Times correspondent. You've uh, focused a lot of attention on their local partners in conflict zones. Can you talk about the roles they play? The local partners in conflict zones are often the people who do the most dangerous work um, in the process of, of covering these stories. Sometimes they do almost the entire uh, job themselves. Uh, they, they translate for foreign correspondents, they help them get interviews, and they also play a security role in the sense that they you know, usually have the cultural knowledge and the linguistic skills 
to be able to tell if if they are in a sort of dangerous situation and that the foreign correspondent actually needs to leave um, the, the site where they are. I think in this particular um, part of the world, there are there, there's a, a long history of um, both Israeli um, local journalists working with foreign correspondents, also Palestinian journalists working with foreign correspondents, um, depending on the conflict and the, the amount of access that's allowed. And so it is absolutely something that's going on now as well. And then there are, of course, the, the local camera people, um, producers, photographers who, as we know, are getting killed. Um, one example is Reuters um, Lebanese photographer Isam Abdallah, who was just killed a few days ago um, with, with the conflict unfolding in Lebanon. Emily, I want to talk about uh, the proliferation of uh, misinformation spreading technology, I guess. Social media platforms, you could make up stuff in print. Now it seems easier to uh, mislabel videos. Now we're getting to the point where we can use uh, so-called AI to make our own videos that look uh, authentic to people who might not know better. Can you talk about how the technology, at least it seems to me, is making things worse and harder when it comes to bad information? I think that's true. Misinformation is not new, and it's been around as mm -hmm. long as people can communicate, but we're able to reach a lot more people with misinformation now through social media and through other sites, and a lot more people can create it in convincing ways. And so I think that it's another space where it really pushes the, the news consumer to be more careful in thinking through where, not just what does this content look like, does it look accurate, is not a really good way to know whether something's true or false. The best way we can do that is by looking across a lot of different sources. And Lindsay, as you watch this current conflict in Gaza, do you have sources you point people toward where, uh, whether it's international correspondence and or local correspondence, uh, where do you recommend people look for for great information? That is such a tough question. And I still certainly think that, you know, it's it's good to be looking for professional news sources as much as possible. Um, you know, there's there's a, uh, as we know, right, there's a, a process by which um, professional journalists are sort of trained um, and their editors are trained to to look at information and and, and make sure that it's accurate. I do think, though, that instead of pointing anyone to one source, I would just say try to try to find as many different professional news sources as possible um, so that you can get the many, many layers of a conflict as as devastatingly complex as this one. Now, I've been talking about misinformation more generally, Emily. Let's talk about disinformation. That's part of the story here where people are actively motivated to try to create a false narrative. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges with disinformation in an international conflict like this? So as you pointed out, disinformation is about having motive, knowing something is false and sharing it anyway because you want to advance some kind of political goal, some financial goal. I think one of the biggest challenges, though, is once it gets to social media, it becomes misinformation. Mm -hmm. The people resharing it mostly believe it, mostly at least think that there's a possibility it could be true. And if it is true, they want to be sharing it with other people. And so that distinction matters a lot for the creators. But when it comes to addressing its spread on social media, it becomes misinformation really quickly when we're dealing with people who are just innocently trying to participate in a conversation. And Lindsay, uh, with any kind of journalism, there's always the question of, you know, how reliable are official sources in this story, all the more so in a war zone? How do uh, war correspondents uh, 
challenge, uh, try to dig into claims, say, by made by the Israeli government or military or by spokespeople for Hamas or the Palestinian Authority? Uh, how can that sort of everyday journalism work in this kind of situation? I think sometimes that everyday journalism can be a little bit harmful in the sense that there is this longstanding tendency to rely and perhaps over-rely, I think, as, as research has shown, um, on official sources. And this is something that communication studies has talked about for decades and decades um, in a number of different conflicts. So I think what's important is that foreign correspondents um, try their best to get the perspectives not only of these official sources, but also of just the everyday regular people who are the ones who are suffering the most, um, get their perspectives in there. And then editors need to make sure that those perspectives make it right into the, the content that people read. We'll leave it there. Lindsay, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you. And Emily, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Emily Vraga is an associate professor at the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. And Lindsay Palmer is an associate professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at UW-Madison. They joined us today to help us evaluate news coverage from the war in Gaza amid a flood of mis- and disinformation and to find out how war correspondents do that kind of work in a very difficult situation. Coming up Monday here on Central Time, what does it mean to be a diva? The author of a new book of essays called On Divas looks at the role of these distinctive personalities in the celebrity world, music and movies, politics, and beyond. And as we get closer to Halloween, we'll check out a classic monster, a Wisconsin expert on zombies. Tells us why they've had such a long run and a big role in popular culture. If you have a favorite zombie movie, story, or TV show, let us know about it. Email ideas at WPR.org. That more coming up Monday here on Central Time. Coming up after the news, we'll look at the K-12 education legislation most likely to pass that will affect schools in the coming year. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. <laughs>